Welcome to Brooklyn's Members TV and Podcasts. I'm Steve Clark and I'm delighted to be joined by the journalist, author and broadcaster, Simon Taylor. Simon, thank you for being with us today. Very good to be here, even though, of course, the circumstances are sad because uh, just a couple of weeks ago, we lost Sir Sterling Moss. Simon, much has been written to discuss with regards to Sterling's racing career. Today, I'd like to talk more about the man and what made him so successful in and out of motor racing. So I'd like to start with your book, Sterling Moss, My Racing Life, which is clearly a very personal description of the man that became Mr. Motor Racing. How did that relationship start with Moss? Well, in my case, um, if, if we want to go through the personal uh, side of things, in my case, I first saw Sterling Moss race. This is, I'm afraid, showing how old I am. I first saw him race on Easter Saturday, 1952, uh, when I was seven years old. Um, he won the Formula 3 race in his Kieft with pretty total confidence and uh, ease. Um, and I suppose it's fair to say that from that day he became my hero. And although I didn't go to that many motor races, um, my dad did take me to a few significant ones uh, at Goodwood, Silverstone and Castle Coombe. And I followed Sterling's career. I watched him race. I read about him in the magazines. And he was my absolute hero from the age of seven. Now, they all say you shouldn't ever meet your heroes, but in the late 60s, um, I was working as a junior reporter on Autosport magazine, and I wrote something in the magazine, and he wrote me a letter. Sterling was an extraordinary, uh, an extraordinarily efficient letter writer. If you sent Sterling Moss a fan letter, you got a reply, um, and Sterling got hundreds of fan letters a week at the height of his uh, uh, the height of his fame but he also read all the magazines he was absolutely on top of everything and so when I wrote something in the magazine I can't remember at this stage whether he actually liked it or he was criticizing it but whichever it was he wrote to me and that made me understand that here was a man who was a world famous personality who had been at his height in his motor racing career, let's face it, the best in the world. And um, nevertheless, there was absolutely no ego. There was no arrogance. There was no false modesty. Sterling knew how good he was, but he didn't make a big deal of it. He just knew that he was um, able to talk to anybody um, and did so in a friendly fashion as an equal. And from that letter, and then through one or two other meetings through the course of my work, we started to become friends. I then began to do bits of work for Sterling. Um, if he had a public occasion speech to make, something like that, he would either get me to help him write the speech, or later on, when he didn't terribly like making speeches, he would turn them into a sort of two-way chat in front of an audience. And we did a lot of that sort of work. And then when he said he wanted to write his final autobiography, because there have been several autobiographies and biographies mm -hmm. up to then, 
Um, he said, look, boy, I've got all these scrapbooks. And I think, why don't we go through the scrapbooks and uh, see if we can make a book of pictures? Well, in fact, My Racing Life, which was the book we produced together, uh, became much more than a picture book. But what we did was every one of the, I don't know, 300 odd pictures, they had long captions so that I was able to say to Sterling, now look, here's a picture of the Easter Monday Glover Trophy in 1956. And you seem to be in second place behind Archie Scott Brown and trying pretty hard. So what was going on there? He'd say, oh yeah, I remember that boy. Well, what, what it was, you see, and off he would go. And his memory was always terrific. Um, he needed a sort of nudge. He'd done so many races, 600 odd races, um, of which he won, I think, 220. Um, but he'd done so much, been to so many tracks, driven so many different cars, that he needed a hint, he needed a nudge. You know, if you said, uh, what about that funny sports car that you drove at, um, uh, at, at Silverstone one day and the door came open? He said, what the hell was that? Oh, he said, yeah, I remember that bloody thing. It was hopeless. And off he would go with another story. And as we did more work together, um, we then, my wife and I became very friendly with Sterling and Susie. We used to go around to dinner there. We used to um, share long trips together, going to events. I mean, I did the Mealy Mealia with him in the 300 SLR Mercedes in 1955, which was one of the most exciting events of my life. Uh, we actually did a couple of Mealy Melias together, although the second one, which was much later, he didn't actually do the entire event. David Coulthard and no, Jochen Mass it was, who shared the car with him. But the thing that one remembers about Sterling, his friendliness, his approachable nature, um, and how easy he was with, with his fame. I remember walking uh, down Shepherd Street in Mayfair, near where he lived. One evening we were going to a restaurant and a couple of blokes, as they passed, said, good heavens, look, that's Sterling Moss. And Sterling looked around and said, where, where? <laughs> he, he was a lovely man. And uh, he, since we're talking now about his character, it's an old fashioned term, but he was a gentleman. He had very good manners. He was a good mannered person. So he would always answer a letter. He would always say good morning, shake your hand. Even if he didn't know you from Adam, he would be courteous and polite. Wouldn't be so polite if you kept him waiting or if you didn't do what you'd said you'd do. Didn't suffer fools at all. Um, in his case, if you are starting to do something, and you'd agreed to do something with him. Maybe it involved money, it might have involved a lot of money if it was a big, big thing. Nothing was ever written down. He'd shake your hand and it would happen. Um, not 100%, but probably 105% of what he promised to do. And um, it's rather like when he was racing, when he raced as he did for the last, uh, what, three or four seasons in his Formula One career, he raced for a walker as a privateer. That was really because he didn't want to drive for a foreign team. He wanted to win 
in a British car. He was very patriotic. So turning down offers from um, Ferrari and others, he drove for Rob Walker's private team and loved it when he beat the Ferraris, like those two great years at Monaco in 60 and 61, um, or at the Nürburgring in 1961, the German Grand Prix, his last, maybe in some ways, his finest Grand Prix victory. He loved being the underdog. He loved beating the works teams. But the point of all of this is that while he was driving for Rob Walker, as then the best and most bankable racing driver in the world, nothing was written down. There were no signatures. Rob Walker told me, he just said, we, we, we had a handshake mm -hmm. and we were both gentlemen and we stuck to the deal. We stuck to the handshake. Now, thinking of that happening in today's ruthless, commercially minded Formula One, um, it beggars belief. Of course, Sterling, who, who liked to earn, liked to do his job, liked to get paid. Um, I, I asked him once what he thought about Lewis Hamilton getting half a million pounds a year. Um, and he said, well, obviously, boy, I, I, would, I wouldn't have said no to half a million pounds a year. But he said, honestly, when I raced, I reckon I earned the same roughly as a really top surgeon or a top QC. And I reckon that was pretty good pay for mm. doing something I loved. Mm. And that kind of epitomizes the way that he treated himself as an ordinary person. Mm. Simon, if you look back to those heady days, you've mentioned uh, gentlemen racers, gentlemen drivers, and you look at Hawthorne and then going through the series of British world champions that followed him, Surtees, Jackie Stewart, Graham Hill, Jimmy Clark. And then all of a sudden in 76, James Hunt arrives on the scene. What did he make of, because he was chalk and cheese from just about everyone else. What did Sterling think of, uh, of James? Well, um, to be fair, Sterling was not judgmental. I mean, Sterling wouldn't have turned up to a press conference barefoot. Um, he wouldn't, um, although he loved the ladies, what he always referred to as crumpet, um, he probably would leave the crumpet alone the night before the race. Um, he wasn't a drinker when he was racing. Um, although, you know, in his retirement, he was quite happy to share a bottle of wine over a good dinner. Um, his approach would never have been the same as James Hunt's, but he accepted that there were different ca characters, there were different people, it's not his way, but it was James Hunt's way, it worked for James Hunt. And he, he wasn't kind of overcritical. Um, I mean, in many ways, Jackie Stewart was very different from mm. Sterling Moss. They were both very professional, they were both absolutely meticulous about how they did their job. But there was a sort of um, sportsman-like element of Sterling, which really belonged to the 1950s. And this isn't a criticism of Jackie Stewart. He was racing at a different time. But in so many ways, Sterling 
regarded racing, however serious it was, as something in which you had to behave mm. with sportsmanlike courtesy. The best example that one can give of that is, we all know Sterling is said to be the best driver never to win the World Championship, which is a rather annoying mm. um, uh, title to give him. He, he would sort of laugh and shrug it off. Uh, he had a little joke about it. He said, well, at least that makes me different from everybody else. All those other buggers, boy. But um, having, I mean, I think it's right to say off the top of my head, he finished second or third in the World Championship for the last five years of his Formula One career. Um, and the only real reason why he didn't win the World Championship at least twice is because his cars weren't always reliable. In fact, Enzo Ferrari made this famous comment because he was trying to get Sterling to drive for him. And Sterling kept saying, well, there's this British car called a Van Wall and it's British and I'd rather drive that. Or there's this British team, Rob Walker, I'm going to go with them. And Enzo Ferrari said, if Sterling Moss had driven with his head rather than his heart, he would have been world champion many times. Well, in 1958, he was driving for the second season for Van Wall, and the Van Wall was quick, um, but it had had its reliability problems. And the Ferraris, which weren't always as quick, were very reliable and tended not to break down. And you got to the final race in the 1958 World Championship, which was in um, Morocco. And in order to win the World Championship, Sterling had to win and set fastest lap, because you got a point for fastest lap in those days. Yeah. And of course, he went out and he did exactly that. He won and he got fastest lap. However, his rival, Mike Hawthorne, only had to finish second. Sterling always regarded motor racing as a sport. Now that's not to say that he wasn't deadly serious, totally motivated. I mean, he was the most competitive man I ever came across. If you were with Sterling, and it was just a matter of wheeling a trolley around a supermarket, Sterling always wanted to do it quickly and be first in the checkout queue. So you couldn't be more serious about your racing, but Sterling was a sportsman. And he always wanted to win, as we've said. He always wanted to drive a British car, even if the British car wasn't the fastest or the most reliable. And that's why he turned down uh, offers from Ferrari and others, and probably would have run the World Championship if he'd been driving for a different team. But he insisted on driving for Van Wall after he'd left Mercedes and Maserati. In 57 and 58, he drove for Van Wall. The Van Walls were quick, but they weren't always reliable. And in 1958, he and Mike Hawthorne, who was the Ferrari team leader, were battling for the championship. Moss led almost every race. I think he led seven of the 10 rounds. Um, but his car broke several times. I think he won three of the races, but broke down in four of the others all the other way around. Anyway, um, they got to the final race and Moss had to win and set fastest lap. He got a point 
the fastest lap in those days. And he had to win, get fastest lap to win the championship, provided that Hawthorne finished lower, uh, finished second. Well, what happened was that Moss won and set his fastest lap. Hawthorne was third in the closing stages of the race. Ahead of him was his teammate, his teammate Phil Hill. Phil Hill got the pit signal to slow down, which he did. Hawthorne got second place. Hawthorne got the championship by one point. However, in the August, a couple of months before, at the Portuguese Grand Prix, Moss in the Van Wall, it held together that time, and Moss won the race brilliantly around an extremely hairy circuit around the city of Oporto. And he was miles ahead of everybody else. And on his slowing down lap, when the rest of the race was still going behind him, he came across Mike Hawthorne, who'd been in second place, on the pavement, stationary, backwards, going up a hill, because Hawthorne had lost it and spun off onto the pavement. And Moss slowed down and made great gestures at him, saying, get the car rolling down the hill and jump in it, you can get going again. So Hawthorne rolled the car down the hill, jumped into the cockpit, bumped started it, got the car going, turned back onto the track, carried on, got his second place, got his six points. Whereupon the organisers disqualified him, saying that he had travelled in the reverse direction of the track and that was against the rules. Sterling, when he heard this, remember this was his closest rival for the World Championship, he said to the organisers, you can't disqualify him. I saw him and he went back, he went the wrong way down the pavement, not down the track. So you can't disqualify him. It's absolutely outrageous. Well, because he was Sterling Moss and the Portuguese organisers were pretty much in awe of him, they accepted Sterling's uh, argument and Mike Hawthorne was reinstated in second place. If it hadn't been for that sportsman-like gesture, Moss would have been world champion that year. Amazing. Simon, if we can wind the clock forward, um, following his dreadful accident in 62 at Goodwood and his retirement in 63, he uh, went on to manage the AC Cars Le Mans entry that very year. How did he take to being the other side of the steering wheel? Well, I have to be honest, what, what happened when Sterling took that decision, um, as you say, he had the accident on Easter Monday 1962, he was in a coma for six weeks. Mm -hmm. Anybody less resilient and less determined would have died. And then he went back to Goodwood, did a private test session. And during that private test session, remember he'd had the most terrible head injury. Um, he did lap the same sort of time as he'd been doing before the accident, Ryan Goodwood. But the problem was, he said when he got out of the car, this is no good, because before I could do the whole thing almost subliminally. It was almost unconscious driving absolutely on the edge and being as quick as it was possible to be. Whereas now, I'm having to think about it, and that's no good. 
so I'm going to retire. He did admit to me um, many years later that maybe that was a premature decision. And maybe if he'd given himself more time and played himself in a bit more, then he could have come back. Anyway, he didn't. And as you say, he was the team manager um, wearing a beard, I seem to remember, yeah. to hide some yeah. of his injuries. Uh, he was the team manager for the um, Works AC uh, at Le Mans. But to be honest, what Sterling decided when he was lying in bed, getting over his injuries, he thought, well, if I'm not going to um, carry on racing, I mean, I'm 32, 33 years old, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Mm -hmm. What I'm going to have to do is become somebody who will be a personality. I'll be somebody who will be able to use my motor racing career as a springboard to do all sorts of other things. Mm -hmm. And I used to pull Sterling's leg that he would never say no to anything. <laughs> somebody was going to pay him 50 quid um, and perhaps a taxi to get there and back. He'd say yes. Because he said, it's my job. I'm not going to turn things down. And it was exactly the same when he was in, in motor racing. You know, he didn't just do Formula One. He didn't just do sports cars. Works driver for uh, Maserati and then for Aston Martin earlier for Jaguar. Won the TT seven times. Um, probably the most brilliant sports car driver. No, certainly the most brilliant sports car driver of his day, as well as at the top of the Formula One tree. But he would also race saloons. He would also um, jump up in a funny little sports car because he said, this is my living racing cars. And if somebody comes up with a car and they want me to race, I'll race it. So he would go to a British meeting, uh, the sort of wonderful international meetings they used to have in the 50s, where you would go to Goodwood on Easter Monday and there would be a Formula One race, there'd be a Formula Two race, there'd be a sports car race, there'd be a touring car race, Sterling would do them all. Just amazing, which is why, of course, he did over 600 races uh, in his day. And that was really that sort of energetic um, preparedness to do anything, that never to stop just doing stuff. Um, that was why he obviously said yes to that uh, Le Mans job for autosport, for um, AC. And as I remember it, that was pretty much a bit of a kind of publicity thing. Mm -hmm. um, and he did an enormous amount of other things. Actually, being a team manager, um, he never considered doing that seriously. And he would have been a disaster as a team manager because he was totally centrally focused. Um, I, I don't think it was the selfishness. It was just part of his determination that when... Yeah. Uh, for example, he was driving for Van Wall, he was their number one driver. He said that he would have, after qualifying, the choice of any of the team cars. that would be him and Tony Brooks and Stuart Lewis Evans. And if he decided during practice that Tony Brooks's car maybe had a slightly better um, characteristic, he would say to Tony Vanderbilt, I want to have Tony Brooks's car tomorrow. And Vanderveld would obviously let him. And Tony Brooks, who is, as we all know, um, I mean, he's probably the remaining most important 
uh, Grand Prix driver, yeah. certainly the, the most important British racing driver, British uh, Grand Prix driver, um, and a hugely talented man. I mean, if you ask Sterling who his best teammates were, he will say, well, Fangio, when he, he was with him in 1955 with Mercedes, Fangio Sterling always regarded as a sort of father figure. And um, he always felt that following in Fangio's wheel tracks, as he did for a lot of the 1955 season, taught him more than anything. Although he could always beat Fangio in sports cups, incidentally. But the other name that Sterling always said was absolutely to be respected and his talent was phenomenal was Tony Brooks. And it's only because Tony Brooks is a delightfully quiet, courteous, self-effacing chap that Tony Brooks's name is not on everyone's lip. Mm. Nevertheless, Tony will say, if you push him, that it was slightly aggravating on the night before the race, when if you thought you had a slightly better car than Sterling, Sterling would be able to whip it from under your nose. So answering your question, I can't see Sterling being his team manager. He was interested in managing himself, yeah. and getting the best out of himself, which he always did. Mm. Um, one of the most remarkable things for me, Simon, is that post his, uh, his accident and retirement, he managed to maintain that persona as Sterling was right to the end, how did he manage to keep that? Quite extraordinary. I agree with you. I mean, let's think. His motor racing career was about 15 years. Yeah. Sure. Started in 500cc cars in 1948. So 15 years racing. And then six, uh, wait a minute, let me get my maths right. 58 years, that's right, as a retired racing driver. Yeah. And yes, as we all know, still, I mean, almost up to the end, policemen who stopped you uh, for speeding would say, who do you think you are, Sterling Moss? In fact, it did happen to Sterling once, he claimed. Uh, he was in Australia doing something or other. I mean, the man had the most crowded diary you could possibly imagine. And it was only because Susie, his beloved wife, organised everything that he was able to fit everything in. And he would whiz to Australia for 36 hours to make some sort of public appearance or something. And he was in Australia, um, fairly off the beaten track. And he was speeding, of course, as he always did. He always went everywhere, absolutely flat out, whether he was on foot or um, dashing across an airport concourse or in a car himself or on his Vespa. He used to whiz around London. On, on a motor scooter. Um, anyway, he was stopped for speeding and the policeman did say, who do you think you are, Sterling Moss? And this was in the wilds of Australia. Of course, the name was known. Who do you think you are, Sterling Moss? And Sterling kind of grinned and said, well, yes, actually, I, I do think I'm Sterling Moss. <laughs> but that, six, that 58 years of endless activity um, it was partly because he wanted to earn a living. Yeah. It was partly because he, he couldn't stop. Sterling was never a man to sit down. He, um, he had this saying, which he was very proud of, um, which was, motion is tranquility. 
motionless tranquility boy, he'd say. And what he meant was that he only felt relaxed when he was rushing about. Hmm. And purgatory for Sterling would be to have to sit down and do nothing. He couldn't do it. And I mean, I've been with him in airport lounges waiting uh, for a plane that's been delayed 15 minutes. And he became impossible, striding around, complaining, haranguing the air hostess and saying, you know, do you realise we're 17 minutes late? What's going on? Um, and that's why his name re remained, because he did public appearances. He um, wrote or ghost wrote articles. He was a television commentator. He, he just did everything that he could. He also had a thriving property business because a lot of his um, investment was in London property. Um, of course, there were two directions in which, during his retirement, he returned to racing. Um, when he was already, gosh, well into his 50s, I mean, possibly his late 50s, um, he was offered a lot of money by Audi when touring car racing was becoming a very big draw. Audi had a two-car team, and uh, this is racing in this country, and they thought how absolutely wonderful to get Sterling Moss into our team. So he agreed to drive in touring cars for Audi for two seasons. And he hated it. He hated it primarily for two reasons. Um, one was that uh, the cars were on slicks. He'd never raced on slicks before. Um, and he thought that driving on slicks required, it a, required a sort of brutal technique. He said, you know, boy, these, these lads, they've grown up in kart racing. And if you're in kart racing, you have violent steering inputs. You, you drive the machine much more crudely. And slicks uh, reward that sort of technique. They don't reward the sort of delicate technique Sterling had. Sterling said, those lads learnt to race on carts. I learnt on horseback. Because when Sterling was six years old, too young to do anything on four wheels. He was competing on four legs. Yeah. And he learned to control the horse with his fingertips. He's, he knew that through the reins, you feel what the horse is doing. And you can turn that to your advantage. You can use the horse better. And in exactly the same way, Sterling and I did thousands of miles, including over a thousand miles on the Mille Emilia with him, watching him. And he held the steering wheel with his fingertips. And he could feel through the rim of the steering wheel what the car was doing, how it was behaving. I remember one occasion in the Mille Emilia where we were late for one control, which was entirely my fault. Um, and we had we had to do... 16 miles in 14 minutes in the 300 SLR through the mountains in the pouring rain. And coming down these narrow mountain roads, he was using not only the steering, but also the brakes to feel, to get the car absolutely to the limit of adhesion, using the brakes, just getting up to where the brakes were locking and coming slightly off the pedal. I mean, his delicacy was extraordinary. And that wasn't rewarded 
in a low-powered touring car on slicks, which had much more road holding than power. Um, he said the only time he enjoyed the touring car racing was when it was raining, because then, on wet weather tyres, his extraordinary feel for the car could come back into play a little bit. The other reason why he hated it was he said, boy, when I was racing, if you touched another car, you had an accident. And maybe your accident would kill the other guy, or maybe it would kill yourself. Yeah. So you didn't touch anybody else. He said, I went and did this touring car stuff, and you'd be going into Paddock Bend, and you'd have a clout from the left, and there'd be a clout on the back wing. He said, that's not how I go racing. So he didn't enjoy that at all. Uh, then, as historic racing began to gather momentum in this country, and he was already well into his 70s by now, he had the opportunity to drive cars which were on the same sort of skinny tires, um, had the same sort of relationship between power and road holding as he'd known in his great days. And of course he loved it. And he raced in historic racing um, for almost a decade, I think, uh, maybe slightly more than a decade, um, even when he fell down the lift shaft in his lift at home, that awful accident, which again would have totally disabled the lesser man. Six months later, aged 82, he was racing again. Um, and he had his own Porsche Spider, he had a Lola, uh, he had a Chevron B8 different times. He had all these serious historic racing cars and he raced them seriously. And then absolutely typically for Sterling and his ability to focus and make decisions when they were necessary, we were at the Le Mans historic meeting in July. He was then 82 years old. He was in his Porsche RSK Spider, very potent piece of equipment. And, you know, the Le Mans historic races, serious racing, and he was competitive and up there. And he came in after qualifying. Race was still to come the next day, but he came in after qualifying, got out of the car, and he said, took off his crash helmet. He said, I've retired. And we said, well, what, why? Well, what, what's happened? He said, well, nothing happened, boy, but um, I was going down the Mulsanne Strait at about 155 miles an hour, lots of cars around, um, on the limit, waiting for the second brow before you get to Mulsanne, which is what you have to break going down the second brow and you have to, no, you have to break going up the second brow. And as you go up the first brow, you say, shit, is this the first brow or the second brow? But anyway, I was going down the Mulsanne Strait and I suddenly decided I didn't feel comfortable. Well, that's no good. You don't feel comfortable in a racing car. Why race? So I'm retiring. Mm -hmm. And I always admired that because that shows the sort of courage and direct thinking of a man like Sterling Moss. Extraordinary. Simon, this has been a fascinating conversation with you this afternoon and I uh, really appreciate your time. This is going to be a difficult one now to say, how would you sum the man up? Well, although I watched him racing when I was a child, <clears throat> And then I watched him racing as an adult when he was in historic racing. Um, I wouldn't sum him up so much for his racing 
as for what sort of man he was. And as we said earlier, you, they say you should never meet your hero because it may disappoint you. As I got to know him, um, he didn't stop being my hero. He became my friend. And I was very privileged with that. But he was a remarkable man. He had an incredible sense of humor. He was very funny. Um, his humor was likely to come out occasionally in slightly awkward moments. Um, I remember once uh, I went to see him one morning. Um, he'd just flown in from Austria where he'd done some sort of highfalutin meeting with the um, British ambassador in Austria, Black Tie Do, the night before. And as we walked to the sandwich bar, he always liked to have coronation chicken on white. He said, no, let's have lunch, boy. Lunch wastes an hour. Let's have a sandwich. So we'd go and get a takeaway sandwich. It was always coronation chicken on white. And while we were walking down there, he told me this awful joke. I mean, very funny, but extremely near the bone, racist, politically incorrect, the lot. And it did make me laugh. And I said, God, Sterling, that's a, it's not one you can use very much. He said, oh, well, the British ambassador in Vienna last night seemed to like it. So he had a great sense of humor. He was very irreverent. He didn't really hold with, I mean, he was a man born at the end of the 1920s. So he didn't really hold with political correctness. That wasn't his bag at all. Um, but he was, he was very friendly. He was in his way very unselfish. Um, he was, as I've said earlier, a man with excellent manners. He was tremendous fun to be with. And yet, although he was a huge personality and a huge character, he was absolutely not above himself in any way, although he of anybody could have shown some ego and you could have forgiven him. But there was no ego. There was no feeling of um, you and me or them and us. He treated you as an equal. So to answer your question, Steve, I would remember Sterling as a gentleman, an enormously entertaining friend, and a man who was much bigger than just his motor racing fame and his motor racing career in motor racing, but in the country as a whole, I think he leaves an enormous hole. Thank you, Simon. Um, as you know, um, Sterling was our original president of the, what was the Brooklyn's members. Um, and we will be holding a celebration just as soon as we're operational again. Good. Uh, clearly that's going to be some months away, um, but we're planning to do that. I certainly hope you'll be part of that celebration. And we're actively okay. looking to assemble as many MOS cars as possible Wonderful. to celebrate. So we've got, I, I think- I could, time. It's, it's sorry to interrupt you, Steve, but that's actually something that I wanted to say, um, which is that it, a, a criticism of a lot of modern motor racing people, drivers, stars, and I gather this happens in other sports as well, football, whatever. Um, modern drivers are criticized sometimes for saying that they have no feeling of heritage. They haven't heard of somebody who might have been world champion 20 years ago. Uh, they don't have a perspective of history. 
Sterling had a wonderful perspective of history. He admired Nuvolari. He loved Brooklands mm -hmm. because he knew the role that Brooklands had played had played in the rise of our country as a motor racing country. Um, his father, Alfred, of course, raced to Brooklands. Yeah. So he was a man who appreciated history. And he'll be delighted that Brooklands is organizing some sort of um, tribute, getting his cars there, because he would feel that if he's part of Brooklands, then that's a compliment. We'll try our best, Simon, to make sure that happens. Good. Um, we don't know when, but it will certainly happen. Simon, once again, thank you for your time this afternoon. Well, it's been a privilege, Steve. Thank Stay you. Stay well, look after yourself and the family, and we'll see you back at the track very soon. Look forward to that, Steve. Thank, thank you, you very much indeed.